0: Hello, welcome to the bore you to sleep podcast, the podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Anne of Avonlea is a 1909 novel by Canadian author. Lucy Maud Montgomery. This book follows the next chapter in life for Anne Shirley, after her time in Green Gables. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. I bring this podcast to you to help you get a good night's rest. It is designed to play in the background as you slowly fall asleep. If it helps, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you enjoy falling asleep to the podcast and would be so kind, please take a moment to leave a review and rating in iTunes or your favorite podcast player of choice. It really does help reach more people who need a good night's rest. You're always welcome to say hello or support the podcast at BoreYouToSleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Chapter 1. An Irate Neighbour A tall, slim girl, half-past sixteen, with serious grey eyes and hair, which her friends called Auburn, had sat down on the broad red sandstone doorstep of a Prince Edward Island farmhouse one ripe afternoon in August, firmly resolved to construe so many lines of Virgil. But an August afternoon, with blue hazes scarfing the harvest slopes, little winds whispering elfishly in the poplars, and a dancing slender of red poppies outflaming against the dark coppice of young firs in a corner of the cherry orchard was fitter for dreams than dead languages. The Virgil soon slipped unheeded to the ground, And Anne, her chin propped on her clasped hands and her eyes on the splendid mass of fluffy clouds that were heaping up just over Mr J. A. Harrison's house like a great white mountain was far away in a delicious world where a certain schoolteacher was doing a wonderful work shaping the destinies of future statesmen and inspiring youthful minds and hearts with high and lofty ambitions to be sure if you came down to harsh facts which it must be confessed Anne seldom did until she had to it did not seem likely that there were much promising material for celebrities in Avonlea School. But you could never tell what might happen if a teacher used her influence for good. Anne had certain rose-tinted ideals of what a teacher might accomplish if she only went the right way about it and she was in the midst of a delightful scene 40 years hence with the famous personage just exactly what he was to be famous for was left in convenient haziness but Anne thought it would rather be to have him a college president or a Canadian premier bowing low over her wrinkled hand and assuring her that it was she who had first kindled his ambition and that all his success in life was due to the lessons she had instilled so long ago in Avonlea School. This pleasant vision was shattered by an utmost unpleasant interruption A demure little Jersey cow came scuttling down the lane, and five seconds later, Mr. Harrison arrived. If arrived, be not too mild a term to describe the manner of his interruption into the yard. He bounced over the fence without warning to open the gate, and angrily confronted, astonished Anne, who had risen to her feet and stood looking at him in some bewilderment. Mr. Harrison was their new right-hand neighbour, and she had never met him before, although she had seen him once or twice. In early April, before Anne had come from Queens, Mr. Robert Bow, whose farm adjoined the Cuthbert Place on the west, had sold out and moved to Charlottetown. His farm had been bought by a certain Mr. J. A. Harrison, whose name and the fact that he was a New Brunswick man Were all that was known about him. But before he had been a month in Avonlea, he had won the reputation of being an odd person. A crank, Mrs. Rachel Lynde said. Mrs. Rachel was an outspoken lady, as those of you who may have already made her acquaintance will remember. Mr Harrison was certainly different from other people and that is essential to his characteristic of a crank as everybody knows. In the first place, he kept his house for himself and had publicly stated that he wanted no falls of women around his diggings. Feminine Avonlea took its revenge by the gruesome tales it related about his housekeeping and cooking. He had hired little John Henry Carter of White Sands and John Henry started the stories. For one thing, there was never any stated time for meals in the Harrison establishment. Mr. Harrison got a bite when he felt hungry and if John Henry were around at that time he came in for a share but if he were not he had to wait until Mr. Harrison's next hungry spell. John Henry mournfully averred that he would have starved to death if it wasn't that he got home on Sundays and a good filling up always happened and that his mother always gave him a basket of grub to take back with him on Monday mornings. As for washing dishes, Mr. Harrison never made any pretense of doing it unless a rainy Sunday came. Then he went to work and washed them all at once in the rainwater Hogshead, and left them to dry. Again, Mr. Harrison was close. When he asked to subscribe to the Reverend Mr. Allen's salary, he said he'd wait and see how many dollars worth of good he got out of his preaching first. He didn't believe in buying a pig in a poke, and when Mrs. Lynde went to ask for a contribution to missions, and incidentally to see the inside of the house, he told her they were more heathens among the old woman gossips in Avonlea than anywhere else he knew of, and he'd cheerfully contribute to a mission for Christianizing them, if she'd undertake it. Mrs. Rachel got herself away, and said it was a mercy poor Mrs. Robert Bell was safe in her grave, for it would have broken her heart, to see the state of her house in which she used to take so much pride. Why she scrubbed the kitchen floor, Every second day, Mrs. Lynde told Marilla Cuthbert indignantly, and if you could see it now, I had to hold up my skirts as I walked across it. Finally, Mr. Harrison kept a parrot called Ginger. Nobody in Avonlea had ever kept a parrot before. Consequently, that proceeding was considered barely respectable, and such a parrot, if you took John Henry Carter's word for it, never was such an unholy bird. It swore terribly. Missus Carter would have taken John Henry away at once if she had been sure she could get another place for him. Besides, Ginger had bitten a piece right out of the back of John Henry's neck one day when he had stooped down too near the cage. Mrs. Carter showed everybody the mark when the luckless John Henry went home on Sundays. All these things flashed through Anne's mind as Mr. Harrison stood. Quite speechless with wrath, apparently, before her. In his most amiable mood, Mr. Harrison could not have been considered a handsome man. He was short and fat and bald, and now, with his round face purple with rage and his prominent blue eyes almost sticking out of his head, Anne thought. He was really the ugliest person she had ever seen. All at once, Mr. Harrison found his voice. I'm not going to put up with this, he spluttered. Not a day longer, do you hear me, miss? Bless my soul. This is the third time, miss, the third time. Patience has ceased to be a virtue, miss. I warned your aunt, the last time, not to let it occur again, and she's let it, she's done it, what does she mean by it, that is all I want to know, that is what I'm about miss, will you explain what the trouble is, asked Anne, in her most dignified manner, She had been practising it considerably of late, to have it in good working order when school began, but it had no apparent effect on the irate J.A. Harrison. Trouble is it, bless my soul, trouble enough, I should think. The trouble is, miss that I found that Jersey cow of your aunt's in my oats again, not half an hour ago. The third time mark you. I found her in it last Tuesday, and I found her in it yesterday. I came here and told your aunt not to let it occur again. She has let it occur again. Where's your aunt, miss? I just want to see her for a minute and give her a piece of my mind. A piece of J.A. Harrison's mind, miss. If you mean Miss Marilla Cuthbert, she is not my aunt, and she has gone down to East Grafton to see a distant relative of hers, who is very ill, said Anne with due increase of dignity at every word. I am very sorry that my cow should have broken into your oats. She is my cow, and not Miss Cuthbert's. Matthew gave her to me three years ago, when she was a little calf, and he bought her from Mr. Bell. Sorry, Miss. Sorry isn't going to help matters any. You'd better go and look at the havoc that animal has made in my oats. Trampled them from centre to circumference, miss. I am very sorry, repeated Anne firmly, but perhaps if you kept your fences in better repair, Dolly might not have broken in. It is your part of the line fence that separates your oat field from our pasture and I noticed the other day that it was not in very good condition. My fence is alright, snapped Mr. Harrison, angrier than ever at this carrying of the war into the enemy's country. The jail fence couldn't keep a demon of a cow like that out, and I can tell you, You red-headed snippet that if the cow is yours, as you say, you'd better be employed in watching her out of other people's grain than in sitting round reading yellow-covered novels with a scathing glance at the innocent tan-coloured virgil by Anne's feet. Something at that moment was red besides Anne's hair which had always been a tender point with her. I'd rather have red hair than none at all, except a little fringe round my ears, she flashed. The shot told for Mr. Harrison was really sensitive about his bald head. His anger choked up again, and he could only glare speechlessly at Anne, who recovered her temper and followed her up for her advantage. I can make allowance for you, Mr. Harrison, because I have an imagination. I can easily imagine how very trying it must be to find a cow in your oats, and I shall not cherish any hard feelings against you for the things you've said. I promise you... "'that Dolly shall never break into your oats again. "'I give you my word of honour on that point.' "'Well, mind you, she doesn't,' muttered Mr. Harrison "'in a somewhat subdued tone. "'But he stamped off angrily enough, "'and Anne heard him growling to himself "'until he was out of earshot. Grievously disturbed in mind,' Anne marched across the yard and shut the naughty jersey up in the milking pen. She can't possibly get out of that unless she tears the fence down, she reflected. She looks pretty quiet now. I dare say she has sickened herself on those oats. I wish I'd sold her to Mr. Shearer when he wanted her last week but I thought it was just as well to wait until we had the auction of the stock and let them all go together. I believe it is true about Mr. Harrison being a crank. Certainly there's nothing of the kindred spirit about him. Anne had always a weather eye open for kindred spirits. Marilla Cuthbert was driving into the yard as Anne returned from the house and the latter flew to get tea ready. They discussed the matter at the tea table. I'll be glad when the auction is over, said Marilla. It is too much responsibility having so much stock about the place and nobody but the unreliable Martin to look after them. He has never come back yet and he promised that he would certainly be back last night if I'd give him the day off to go to his aunt's funeral. I don't know how many aunts he has got, I am sure. That's the fourth that has died since he hired here a year ago. I'll be more than thankful when the crop is in and Mr. Barry takes over the farm. We'll have to keep Dolly shut up in the pen till Martin comes, for she must be put back to pasture, and the fences there have to be fixed. I declare it is a word of trouble, as Rachel says. Here's poor Mary Keith dying, and what is to become of those two children of hers? is more than I know. She has a brother in British Columbia, and she has written to him about them, but she hasn't heard from him yet. What are the children like? How old are they? Six past. They're twins. Oh, I've always been especially interested in twins, ever since Mrs. Hammond had so many. Are they pretty? Goodness, you couldn't tell. They were too dirty. Davy had been putting out mud pies, and Dora went on to call him. Davy pushed her head first into the biggest pie, and then, because she cried, he got into it himself and wallowed in it to show her it was nothing to cry about. Mary said Dora was really a very good child, but that Davy was full of mischief. He has never had any bringing up, you might say. His father died when he was a baby, and Mary has been sick almost ever since. I'm always sorry for children that have no bringing up, said Anne soberly. You know... I hadn't any till you took me in hand. I hope their uncle will look after them. Just what relation is Mrs. Keith to you? Mary, none in the world. It was her husband. He was our third cousin. There's Mrs. Lynde coming through the yard. I thought she'd be up to hear about Mary. Don't tell her about Mr. Harrison and the cow, implored Anne. Marilla promised, and the promise was quite unnecessary, for Mrs. Lynde was no sooner fairly seated than she said, I saw Mr. Harrison chasing your jersey out of his oats today when I was coming home from Carmody. I thought he looked pretty mad, Did he make much of a rumpus? Anne and Marilla furtively exchanged amused smiles. Few things in Avonlea ever escaped Mrs. Lynde. It was only that morning Anne had said, If you ever went to your own room at midnight, locked the door, pulled down the blind and sneezed, Mrs. Lynde would ask you the next day how your cold was. I believe he did, admitted Marilla. I was away. He gave Anne a piece of his mind. I think he is a very disagreeable man, said Anne, with a resentful toss of her ruddy head. You never said a truer word, said Mrs. Rachel, solemnly. I knew there'd be trouble when Robert Bell sold his place to a New Brunswick man. That's what. I don't know what Avonlea is coming to, with so many strange people rushing into it. It'll soon not be safe to go to sleep in our beds. Why, what other strangers are coming in? asked Marilla. Haven't you heard? Well, there's a family of Donalds, for one thing, they've rented Peter Sloan's old house. Peter has hired the man to run his mill. They belong down east and nobody knows anything about them. Then that shiftless Timothy Cotton family are going to move up from the White Sands and they'll simply be a burden on the public. He is in consumption when he isn't stealing, and his wife is a slack-twisted creature that can't turn her hand to a thing. She washes her dishes, sitting down. Mrs. George Pye has taken her husband's orphan nephew, Anthony Pye. He'll be going to school to you, Anne. So you may expect trouble, that's what. And you'll have another strange pupil, too. Paul Irving is coming from the States to live with his grandmother. You remember his father, Marilla. Stephen Irving, him, that jilted Lavender Lewis over at Grafton. I don't think he jilted her. There was a quarrel. I suppose there was blame on both sides. Well, anyway. He didn't marry her and she's been as queer as possible ever since. They say, living all by herself in that little stone house she calls Echo Lodge. Stephen went off to the States, and went into business with his uncle and married a Yankee. He's never been home since, though his mother has been up to see him once or twice. His wife died two years ago, and he's sending the boy home to his mother for a spell. He's ten years old, and I don't know if he'll be a very desirable pupil. You can never tell about those Yankees. Mrs. Lynde looked upon all people who had the misfortune to be brought or born up anywhere else than in Prince Edward Island with a decided can any good thing come out of Nazareth There. They might be good people, of course, but you are on the safe side in doubting it. She had a special prejudice against Yankees. Her husband had been cheated out of $10 by an employer for whom he had once worked in Boston, and neither angels nor principalities nor powers could have convinced Mrs. Rachel that the whole United States was not responsible for it. Heavenly school won't be the worst for a little new blood, said Marilla dryly, and if this boy is anything like his father, he'll be all right. Steve Irving was the nicest boy that was ever raised in these parts though some people did call him proud, I should think Mrs Irving would be very glad to have the child. She has been very lonesome since her husband died. Oh, the boy may well be enough, but he'll be different from Avonlea children, said Mrs Rachel, as if that clinched the matter. Mrs. Rachel's opinions concerning any person, place, or thing were always warranted to wear. What's this I hear about your going to start up a village improvement society, Anne? I was just talking it over with some of the girls and boys at the last debating club, said Anne, flushing. They thought it would be better and rather nice... And so do Mr. and Mrs. Allen. Lots of villagers have them now. Well, you'll get into no end of hot water if you do. Better leave it alone, Anne. That's what. People don't like being improved. Oh, we are not going to try to improve the people. It is Avonlea itself. There are lots of things which might be done to make it prettier. For instance, if we could coax Mr. Levi Balter to pull down that dreadful old house on his upper farm, wouldn't that be an improvement? And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy and a little sleepy. If you're not quite tired yet, Please feel free to listen to another episode. I look forward to bringing you a new episode soon, and in the meantime, good night.